Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Kate Benton just completed her 27th year at Harvard Westlake, where she has served as a member of the performing arts faculty, and most recently, as head of the middle school deans. In this episode, Kate explains how middle schoolers have adjusted back to in-person school this year, academically, mentally, and socially, and how Kate and her colleagues start by really listening to the students who need it. Kate also describes her upbringing in New York City as the child of a theater producer and a classically trained violinist, and how her family helped to spur in Kate a passion for the arts. This carried through to her schooling at Chapin, Dana Hall, and then Northwestern, before Kate ventured west to Los Angeles and joined the famed Groundlings Improvisation and Sketch Comedy Theater, where she later served as president. Following an acting career that included appearing on two episodes of Seinfeld, we discussed them both, Kate discovered Harvard Westlake and in 1995 accepted Tom Hudnut's invitation to begin an illustrious career as an educator. In conclusion, Kate tells one of the most moving stories of this entire series, relating to the Broadway musical Mame and a fire and her father in a time when, as Kate says, Harvard Westlake was listening. This is The Supporting Cast. supporting cast. Thank you, Eli. Thank you. Thanks for making the time today. We are nearly, actually, by the time this comes out, we'll probably be right about at the end of the school year. And so I know it is a busy time for you and the other middle school deans. So I appreciate you uh, making the time today. I'm happy to be here and happy to reflect. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. We're happy to hear it. So the first question really, this has been the case for the last two plus years because of the pandemic. The first question I have for each guest is really, how are you doing personally during this unique time in history, uh, nearing the end of another school year? How are you and Jim and your family doing? Thank you so much for asking. Remarkably well. We are all healthy, thank goodness. Employed, thank goodness. <laughs> Although Jim's about to retire. but That's right. <laughs> so we're, we're doing well. It's definitely been challenging the past couple of years, and there have been ups and downs. And admittedly, I really battled the blues when we all went into quarantine. and Did you? Yeah. I think a lot of people did. But being busy was really important, staying busy. And I'm also a glass half full kind of a person. So I'm always, you know, looking for the positive. And so staying busy, meaning kind of your work, your work at Harvard Westlake was, yes. was one of the things that kept you busy and engaged? Yes, exactly. So I would want to stay busy, stay on emails, help with whatever planning I could help with in terms of restructuring what school would look like on Zoom, et cetera. Well, I want to talk about, you know, there was school on Zoom, and then this year has really been this reentry into real on-campus life for students again. And of course, it's so much better now that students are back in person on campus. I'm sure that you would agree. But there are also challenges that students are still experiencing as a result of this distance time. 
And I want to talk through them with you as a middle school dean who is really boots on the ground with students hearing about their challenges and trying to help them with those challenges. And there are kind of three areas I want to talk about. There's sort of the academic reentry, there's the mental reentry, and then sort of the social reentry. So maybe we can start with the academic. How has it been for students reentering into in-person school academically? For the most part, I think it's something that the students are really happy to be back on campus, yeah. um, to be going to school in person with their teachers in the classrooms. And again, for the most part, kids are handling it remarkably well. The challenges are managing the stress of doing homework and studying for a test and taking the test in person again. Those are learned skills that everybody was out of practice. For instance, our, our, our seventh graders and our eighth graders never had that experience, have not had that experience yet in person. And our current ninth graders only had it for half the year in seventh right. grade. So in a way, everybody was starting from scratch. I think organization, time management, learning how to make appointments with your teachers, those were new skills that needed to be redeveloped or developed for the first time. And what about mentally, emotionally, psychologically? I mean, there's a lot of talk about that out in the world mm -hmm. that this pandemic and the isolation of this pandemic really impacted kids. Of course, it didn't impact all of us. Mm -hmm. But how do you feel like it impacted middle school students? I've heard from parents and kids a wide range of how it's impacted them. Some kids really loved being at home and studying yeah. by themselves and having Zoom classes. Many did not like it. It was really jarring to see themselves or for anyone to see themselves on camera all the time. You start focusing on what you look like and mm. you know everyone's staring at you in the class and you know so you'll see kids put their hoodies on or Turn their cameras off. Turn the cameras off or sit in a way so you can only see the top of their head. It really felt for so many people that they were just really under the microscope. And that was, it's a self-conscious age anyhow. And so that right. really made things really challenging for some kids. And then it was especially challenging for another number of students who really struggled with, with mental health and needed to seek additional help other than just talking to a dean or a parent or a grandparent or family members where they needed healthcare providers outside. Yeah, can I ask a follow-up on that? If a student comes to you and says, you know, I'm really struggling, or a parent reaches out to you and says, my child is really struggling, what's your step? Like, what, 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 what are the steps that Harvard-Westlake takes to try to seek help for that student? Well, first we'll talk and, and, and listen and understand yeah. what they are telling me. And then I'll ask if they would like us, meaning Harvard-Westlake, to help and see if I can connect them to Kelly Decker, the school psychologist. Right. And Kelly can also make outside referrals if they would prefer to talk with somebody who's not related to Harvard-Westlake. So finding out what kind of support they're looking for and then providing them with those resources. It's interesting about the having the camera on. I didn't think about that. You know, that we talk about Instagram and how particularly for adolescents, adolescent girls, they say in particular, the sort of being so self-critical of themselves and the photographs and things. It never occurred to me that having one screen on, having their face reflected back to them is sort of reinforcing some of those insecurities at that age. Oh, yeah. I mean, with Instagram, you have control over what you're posting. But on Zoom, it's hard to be camera ready at 8 a.m. <laughs> it is for all of us. <laughs> yeah. And especially if you're feeling 
you know, like you've lost motivation or if you're feeling blue or if you're really battling depression, it is, you know, it's hard to, to show up. And so what about socially? People have been at home, they've been in their rooms, they've been connecting over Zoom, maybe they've been having, hanging out with friends, especially the early part of the pandemic outdoors. Now they're back all bumping up against one another again. Kind of what have been the challenges you've seen there? It's interesting to talk with faculty when we all came back to school this year in person. Yeah. And what we noticed was a lack of awareness of students having to share their environment with others, as in a lot of others. So the trash was really out of control this year. Kids sitting around with their feet on the tables and not putting things back the way they found them. It wasn't premeditated. It was just they weren't aware. Also, there hadn't been an opportunity for us as teachers to explain what the community norms are. Yeah. You know, whether it's a cell phone policy or it's whether pick up after yourself with trash and don't leave your backpacks right in the middle of the entrance to the cafeteria. <laughs> yeah. Right next to the sign that says no backpacks. <laughs> um, so, so that messaging wasn't constant as it had been for years. So again, that had to be, be relearned. So we're noticing a big improvement now in the springtime. And also because there were some teachers that really made a concerted effort to tell kids, listen, I care about this community. I want you to care about it too. Please clean up after yourselves. And so do you think it's because students were spending time at home, if they had trash, they had parents <laughs> who could who could pick that trash up. Presumably. The rules were different. And so they didn't have to, it's the, the sense of a shared space right. to which they are responsible. Correct. Kind of, Correct. That's the thing then, that was new. And then we also noticed sort of socially, everybody seemed younger. So- ah. Seventh graders, it sort of felt like they were more like fifth graders right at first. Now they feel like seventh graders. Eighth graders felt more like seventh graders. Ninth graders felt more like eighth graders because they'd missed out on a whole year of socialization with each other. Interesting. And Interesting. now everybody sort of feels back on track to where they're supposed to be. Everybody felt kind of young and immature at the beginning of the school year. Yeah, I heard that from the admission team, interestingly, as well. I mean, of course, we accept great students and all the students we accept are wonderful and, and can answer great questions. But they also noticed there was a little bit less ease with the conversations from students who had been spending a year Zoom learning as opposed to learning alongside peers. It's so true. And, and you know, the what is learned by just passing somebody in the hallway when you're going between classes, you know how we all as humans, we'll just sort of assess the situation, look at who's approaching us. Somebody might pass, who's your friend? Somebody might pass that you don't know. Somebody might pass that you're uncomfortable with. Those are all such important social things to experience as you're developing as a yeah. person and through adolescence, and kids missed out on that. So we've talked about the challenges, of course, of kids coming back now in person. Can you talk about, you've been a dean at the school for a long time. You've been at the school more than a quarter century at Yikes. this point. <laughs> you started in 1995, I believe. Right. Is that right? Yep. So I'm finishing my 27th year. What's the joy of being a middle school dean? And I know you're taking a slight departure from that role next year, which we'll get to, but what has been the joy of being back on this campus with kids again? Much of what we were just talking about, the socialization, being with them in person. They're so smart. They're so funny. 
You never know what's going to happen. They're so engaging. And, you know, I, this is something I've said for years, but and I jokingly say, the students keep me young and make me old all at the same time. <laughs> um, but I really, the joy is the kids and seeing them interact with one another, but also having them come and interact with me. Some of the funniest stuff, I have a, still on my bulletin board, I have a, a post-it note from a student who's long graduated that says, Miss Benton, I left my sock outside to dry. Have you seen it? <laughs> like, I need a little more information. I know I know a lot of things, and I'm good at finding lost items, but where was it? <laughs> so finally figured it out. Oh, good. I'm glad. Hot chocolate had spilled on the sock. Of course. The student rinsed it off in the bathroom, left it on top of a trash can to dry. <laughs> it blew down the outdoor stairs. Anyhow, it was pretty funny. I'm going to make a, a wild guess here that it was a male student. It was. It was. All right. I'm just... <laughs> a seventh grade boy. <laughs> so I'd really love to get to your story, Kate, because I know you had a career prior to Harvard Westlake. Despite you being here for 27 years, there are some interesting things that you did prior to coming to Harvard Westlake, and I'd love to get into those and, and go even earlier. So where did you grow up, Kate? I grew up in New York City. In Manhattan? 69th between 1st and 2nd, yep. Wow. Yeah. And tell me about your parents. My dad was VP and head of PR for Time Life Books, and my mom was a mother of four girls. She went to Juilliard. She's a violinist. Um, she still really? plays violin at age 87. And then she went to the Fashion Institute and graduated, I think, in her 40s. But she was a really good sewer. She sewed a lot of our stuff. And she was a master smocker. That smocking is that special stitching on dresses. You'll see old-fashioned dresses that girls wear, and it's starting to come back. So she also designed patterns for McCall's, and she wrote a couple of books, and she would travel the country giving classes on how to smock. And my father, he loved theater. He was the head of Hasty Pudding, at Harvard. So hmm. he graduated in 51, and he and his dear friend Fred Gwynn, the actor, you might remember as Herman Munster. Oh, wow. Car 54, where are you? So f Mr. Gwynn and my dad were co-presidents of the Hasty Pudding Club and started the Woman of the Year Award. So the first recipient was Gertrude Lawrence, who was a famous star of the stage. and She was in The King and I on Broadway, amongst many, many other things. And for those who don't know, Hasty Pudding... Each year, don't they give an award to kind of a celebrity and they do an event around that person? Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so, and they also do musical comedic reviews at Hasty right. Pudding. It's different right. from National Lampoon. Well, I was about to go out on a tangent about how my father met Nancy Walker, who was, she's known to the older folks listening to this as the bounty lady. She did bounty commercials on TV and she was also... Rhoda's mother on the Mary Tyler Moore show, but she was a very famous Broadway actress back in the day. And uh, she saw dad in Hasty Pudding and they became fast friends. And he went on to produce a show that she did, which was a review uh, called Phoenix 55. So he produced that. And then he and my godfather, a gentleman named Stan Flink, who taught at Yale for years and years. Some of my, my students had him as a teacher at Yale. Wow. So Stan and my dad paired up and became producers. So they produced Phoenix 55 together, and then they produced Salad Days, which was a huge hit in England. And then they produced a couple of plays by A.R. Gurney, P. 
Pete Gurney. Uh, they did Love Letters and The Golden Age and Cocktail Party and a couple of other. So Dad always had a love for theater, and he, you know he did that sort of as, as a side gig, if you will, while he was working his way up with Stan. They were both they both started as reporters for Life Magazine. So between your dad, who was producing theater, and then your mom, who was a violinist, and she was also a sewer, and the arts was a big part of your upbringing as a, as a young girl. Big part of my upbringing. And dad would take me, all of us, to Broadway shows starting when we were little kids. I think the first show I saw was with Gertrude Lawrence. And what I remember is sitting in the audience and this the curtain opens and this woman with this huge, gorgeous hoop skirt gown comes out on stage. And that was Gertrude Lawrence. Anyhow, we always had to have alone time during the day because with four daughters, my mother needed a little breathing room every now and then. We didn't have to nap anymore by the time we were five and six, but we had to learn how to spend an hour by ourselves every day. Mom said, there's value in that. One, for my peace of mind, and two, <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, you have to learn how to entertain yourself. You can't wait for expect people to be there to entertain you your life. You've got to learn how to be comfortable with your own company and mm -hmm. figure out what to do when you're bored. And that was really, really good advice. And of course, I did that with my kids growing up. So I would go into the den and I would put on Broadway records. I'd put on the LPs of Broadway shows because my dad had a vast collection of everything. And I would dance around and play all the parts. And I think that was talking about how I got interested in, in theater. I, it I started can, from then. It started from then, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell me about your schooling. What was your schooling like? Did you go to school in Manhattan? Yeah. So the first school that I went to was Ru Rudolf Steiner School, which is Waldorf schools are an affiliate of that. I was there for kindergarten one and two, and then first grade, and then switched to a school called the Lennox School, which is an all-girls school and no longer exists. And then after Lennox, I left there after fourth grade. So I was there for second, third, and fourth. And then I went to the Chapin School, and stayed there through ninth grade. And then I went to the Dana Hall School, which is in Wellesley, Massachusetts. It's a boarding school. Because back in my day, we all wanted to go to boarding school. Oh, is that right? <laughs> it, was, it was like going to college when you were 15. You had to make your own decisions about your classes. You had to be responsible and manage your bank account and have a little checkbook and get a job in the summer so I could have money in my bank account so I could go into town and buy a sandwich and and a soda, you know, I really, really, really loved it and made my closest friends at Dana. Everyone says, oh, were you a bad child? Did your parents send you away to boarding school? But no, it was sort of what a lot of kids did in New York. There was excitement around the freedom of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My older sister went there as well, so that was fun. So when I went as a sophomore, she was a senior. And so at Dana Hall, did you further your interest in drama there? And if so, kind of were there people there that helped further those interests? Yeah, I did. I, I never really had the courage to audition for any of the plays at, at Chapin. The, the drama teacher there was intimidating and <laughs> you know, she had a lot of bracelets that clanked and made a lot of noise. And I was a little scared of her. But I also thought, oh, I'm, I'm young. I probably won't get a part. So I, I, I didn't try out for anything. When I got to Dana Hall, I did try out for the first play in the fall was Our Town. And so I auditioned and I got cast as Mrs. Soames, who's the town gossip. And I don't know how Jean Armand knew me so well back then, but she did. <laughs> and that was so much fun. And to hear the laughs, to get the to hear the laughs for the first time on stage was was really exciting. And then continued to audition and got increasingly larger roles. Jean 
is a huge mentor of mine. Um, mm. One of the reasons I think I became an actor and also one of the reasons why I wanted to be a drama teacher mm. when was I got because... to Harvard Westlake. It was because of Jean. Yeah. May she rest in peace. And you mentioned the laughs in particular. Did you feel like between kind of heavy drama versus things that were lighter and more comedic that you found yourself also kind of veering toward comedic things or did you like both? I liked both and I yeah. still do. It's it's really fun to perform all types of material and I love doing both. And I, I got cast in, in both at Dana Hall and then at Northwestern, which is where I went to college. I was a theater major at Northwestern. But the laughs, uh, there's nothing like it. When you nail the timing of something and the audience responds and that instant feedback that you get and then learning how to hold for a laugh and then how to, once a laugh dies down, how to top in with your next line of dialogue, it's, it's technique that you build and you feel mm. in your bones. And so that timing was something you started to learn yeah. at Dana Hall? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I think I probably already had timing because my family loves jokes and telling jokes and telling stories. And so I grew up with all of that around the dinner table. So I probably had timing already in my bones a little bit. And we were allowed to watch one TV show growing up when we were kids. I always chose I Love Lucy. Oh, so right? I, think, I think watching Lucille Ball, she's just, her timing's incredible. And so from there, you went to Northwestern and you were a theater major and that was your goal from the beginning? Actually, I was thinking of not going to college and just going straight to Broadway to become an actress. And I remember the summer before my senior year, one of my parents' friends said, where are you going to apply to college? And I said, well, I think I'm going to go to Broadway and become an actress. And he said, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He goes, you've got to go to college. You need the education. You need the socialization. You need the experience. It's an incredible time in your life. Do not squander that opportunity. So I took his words to heart. <laughs> I'm glad I went to college. Again, met so many incredible friends and colleagues too. You were around some actors there that ended up having big careers. Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Harvard Wesley father, Clancy Brown. Uh, oh, yeah. J James Johnson Brown just graduated last year. That's right. He's, Clancy by the is, way, he is in the Shawshank Redemption. He is the uh, prison guard. Yeah, the, yeah. The lead prison is. guard. The lead prison imagine. guard. Julia Louis-Dreyfus right. uh, was below me at Northwestern, and I got to do two Seinfelds, and it was really fun to connect with her again. But I, I'm still in touch with her and her husband, Brad Hall, who's a writer and a producer, and a lot of us sort of Northwestern-type types get together, some more frequently than others. But once you've made that friendship and you've done shows together, that's a really strong bond. I bet. And I will get to Seinfeld a little bit later in this conversation because okay. <laughs> I think people want to hear about that too. So then after Northwestern, you knew you wanted to pursue theater. Did you go to, into theater first or improv? How did you kind of make your way west? When I graduated from Northwestern, I spent a year after school. I decided not to go to Europe with my two roommates because I got an opportunity. I was, I was hired to direct an original play written by Shelley Goldstein another Northwestern grad, she wrote this play called Coming Attractions about four young girls sort of making it as actors. So Coming Attractions, I got hired to direct that, and it ended up being the longest-running original comedy in Chicago for like two years. Wow. So I stayed in town to direct that, and then I kept getting phone calls and cards and postcards from two other great friends from Northwestern, Mark Loker and Mary Woods Brown. Mark directed me in 
Mame and also played Martha in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf when I was a senior at Northwestern. Right about now, I'm perfect for that role. <laughs> how I knew how to play that role at age uh, 21, I'm not quite sure. But So Mark and Mary kept sending me, they were both native Los Angeles, and they kept sending me postcards saying, move out to California. Mm. It's beautiful here, postcards with sunsets and palm trees. So I moved out for the summer, and that was May 28th, 1981. 42 years ago, which is incredible. <laughs> so the summer turned into my life. And once out here, I had all sorts of odd jobs. Meantime, I auditioned for and I got into The Groundlings, which is the comedy improv yeah. theater. And I was taking acting classes here and there too. So I stayed with The Groundlings. I, you know, I kept getting going up to the next level and I got promoted and I made it into the Sunday company. And then I made it into the main company. Yeah. And so I, I was a performer at the Groundlings from 1984 to 1992. And the only reason why I left, I loved it. It was so much fun. But I, I was married. I married Jim Dugan. We met at the Groundlings. Yes. So we met making each other laugh. And again, <laughs> back to the laughter. Laughter is great glue. Yeah. Um, our first child was born in 1991, Charlie Dugan, who graduated yep. in 09. And it was really hard to stay up late and go to those rehearsals and maintain that schedule, you know, getting home at two in the morning and then having an infant who was waking up at three in the morning. So it was it was a lot. So I decided I would give up my spot so somebody else could buy some wacky costumes and some wigs. <laughs> <laughs> and if you go, by the way, if you go to the Groundlings to this, and I guess I haven't been the last few years, but at least pre-pandemic, you'll see photos of you and Jim on the walls, all over the walls of, of the Groundlings. And the Groundlings is such an institution in improv comedy and so many great performers, as we know, have come out of the Groundlings. I'm curious about that experience and whether there were mentors there uh, and people that you learned from there that you think about today. Well, oh, yeah. I mean, so many friends and mentors. I'm thinking about I, I came up with Lisa Kudrow, Kathy Griffin, John Lovitz, Phil Hartman. I was in a show of his and also was the associate producer, and it ran during the 1984 Olympics. He, this is a live show? This is it a was live a live show. show. It is an improv whodunit. Oh. And so the audience could, you know, through their suggestion, decide which way the ending went. Yeah. Huh. And so everybody on stage had to just improvise. Everybody had set characters, and there was a set format. But we didn't ever know who was going to be the murderer or why or how it all happened until that night. And we'd get different suggestions from the audiences. So that was lots and lots of fun. And Phil's brain, I'm in awe of. I remember seeing my first Groundling show and Tim Stack, who was actually one of my teachers, another mentor of mine. Yeah. Tim Stack and Phil Hartman got a suggestion from the audience for a title for a rockabilly song. And they improvised this rockabilly song. And my socks were blown off. They were so funny and so smart. And then Tress McNeil, who's a big voiceover actress, and Lynn Stewart, who's a big actress. She was on Pee Wee's Playhouse and a million things. They came out from the wings and they did a jitterbug with Phil and Tim during the music break and then they go off. And I said, this is amazing. I have to be a part of this. So <laughs> that's how I got involved with Groundlings. It was a really, really, really fun time. There was so much talent came out of that theater whether as performers or writers or directors. So when you leave Groundlings, I guess in the early 90s, is that around the time Seinfeld happens? 
Or was it? Yeah, actually, I did Seinfeld before that because I was pregnant okay. with Charlie. I was five months pregnant with Charlie when I did the Chinese restaurant episode. Oh, is that right? So tell people, yeah. for those who are listening and who are Seinfeld fans, what episodes, I guess, plural, were you a part of? So I was time? part of two. One was the first season and one was the second season. And back then, there weren't really any big guest star roles because they they have their, their main company of players. But there were small parts. So I had a small part in the Chinese restaurant episode, which... Again, I can still quote lines from that because it was the first TV episodic show that took place in one location. Usually you'll go from like, oh, the the, the classroom to right. home in the living room. They call room. it a bottle episode. Is that kind of the technical yeah, thing? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So the entire action, all the action took place in the Chinese restaurant. So I was in the Chinese restaurant. I play the, uh, the snooty lady hogging the phone from Jason Alexander. And... <laughs> And he's this, waiting on a call or something? Yes, he's waiting on a call from another girlfriend that, you know, <laughs> he's desperate so to So George with. is getting like, continually more and more, and more anxious. Yeah. I, I was waiting here. Where? I didn't see you. I've been standing here for the last 10 minutes. I won't be long. Um, that's not the point. The point is, I was here first. Well, if you were here first, you'd be holding the phone. <laughs> and then the next year... I was in an episode called The Pez Dispenser, um, sure. which is when Jerry and Elaine are playing with a Pez Dispenser during a piano recital of Susan, who was Jason Alexander's girlfriend and then becomes his fiance <laughs> later on. Yes. And they get giggling and laughing, and it makes Susan flub her recital. And she remembers Elaine's laugh. There were a couple of stories in that one. There was... um. It was that, and also there was an intervention story. And so I'm one of the friends at the intervention for one of Jerry's friends who's a comedian, and they're having an intervention at Jerry's apartment. And so I'm in that episode, and I think Jason Alexander improvised a line like, you look familiar, haven't we met someplace before? So he did that in character, meaning that I, an inside joke for people that actually watch the show. Right, right. <laughs> and so what did you, from being part of those two episodes, was there something that you took away that said, oh, the, something either that you learned or that you observed that made that, that the combination of elements of that show just work so remarkably well? Well, again, the glue of the laughter and how much fun everybody was having on the set. My, a takeaway was, uh, was watching the director let the actors do their thing. And another thing that sticks with me is, you know, usually you'll say, hey, take five, take 10, and everybody goes off and, you know, they might get a snack or a cup of coffee or whatever. Michael Richards stayed on the set and would practice his sliding entrance or he'd practice his pratfall or he would practice yeah. you know, tripping over his own feet and falling on the couch because he made it look so effortless. But it was, again, all about the timing. And that stuck with me. It was something I remembered as an actor that just because you take five doesn't mean it's time to goof off. That's actually time for you to do your work and get ready for the next scene. Mm -hmm. so, and sometimes the stuff that looks effortless only looks that way because someone has spent hours and hours, hours perfecting it. Yeah. Right? I mean, and, and that's Lucille Ball also. Yeah. Unlike Jackie Gleason, who hated to rehearse, and he just, when they would shoot the honeymooners, he would just improv and just wing it and just go. So there's there's definitely different styles. Is there a a lesson from improv? I guess this is the moment to pause and ask this question. Is there a lesson from improv that is translatable to working in schools and working with middle schoolers? Something about yes and, or something about rolling with the punches? Is, is there something there? Definitely. Yeah. Uh, for the yes and, you know, a kid says, I don't like this, I don't want to do it. Yes, and so instead of saying, no, you have to, you know, you can yeah. give it a little bit of a positive spin. For improv in the classroom, you know, you can 
plan a lesson that you think is so fantastic and you're so excited right. and it sits there like an egg and doesn't <laughs> the kids are staring at you like a tray of donuts and nothing is happening so you have to just be able to pivot and and think of something else and haven't you know it's like okay so what's the core of what I want them to learn from this and what's another way I can teach it yeah so improv is really helpful in the classroom in that regards it can be helpful with just any kind of extemporaneous speaking you have to do. And as a teacher, you, you do a lot of that. And, and just to be resilient and to bounce back. So whether you want to be an actor or not, I highly recommend that people take an improv class, you know, wherever it is, because it builds confidence, it builds your imagination and your creativity, and it's fun and you laugh a lot. It's really great. It's good for your soul. Yeah, I agree. I took an improv class once, actually, Good. and I feel like it helps me in every way as a as a manager, as a public speaker, um, yeah, in my personal relationships, everything. Yeah, so. yeah. And and when I was on the board at the Groundlings, I was on the board. I was the president of the Groundlings when I was there, and I was on the board then. But when I left oh. and I was an alum, I came back as the alum representative to the board. And at the time, I was teaching then at Harvard Westlake, and. I said to them, you've got to start teenage classes. There are so many kids out there that want to learn this. I get so many phone calls from kids and parents saying, what can I do this summer? Where should I go? And they did. They, they started a teenage class, and now it's thriving. And I bet. I'm, I'm, glad they, I'm glad they did. So you leave, you start having kids mm -hmm. <laughs> with Jim in the early 90s, and, you, and is it, that's when you start kind of taking the steps toward education? Taking the steps towards education kind of found me. Okay. Uh, I knew I always wanted to teach. I just wasn't sure when. So I was making my living as an actor. I was doing some movies and some commercials. And on Saturdays, I took an adult acting class, a scene study class with Ted Walsh at ah. the upper school. And there was a lot of us that had graduated from Northwestern who were taking the workshop. Ted started the workshop. It was called the Walsh Buyer Workshop. He co-taught it with Bud Beyer, who has since passed away, but he was one of my acting teachers at Northwestern. The other was David Downs, both incredible teachers who taught me so much. Bud and Ted started a summer workshop for graduates from Northwestern, so we could still do scene study and feel like we're doing you know, significant acting as opposed to reading commercial copy. So I took the Ted Walsh's class and stayed with him just, gosh, long time. So this must have been the spring of 95. Ted said, hey, come and see Carousel. That's a musical that he was directing that spring. And Maggie Gyllenhaal was playing one of the lead roles. And I went to go see Carousel. And at intermission, I got chatting with Tom Hudnut. And he knew everybody who was the principal at all the schools Chapin I went to. Chapin and Dana <laughs> Hall. Chapin and Dana Hall, yeah. yep. Because, you know, the heads all have a consortium and they all know each other. And so we chatted. And then about a month later, I got a call from Ted saying, I just talked to Tom Hudnut and he wanted to know if you'd be interested in interviewing for the drama position at the middle school. And I didn't even know there was a drama position at the middle school until Ted mentioned it to me. And so I talked to Jim about that. I mean, as actors, there's a rule. Don't go on the audition unless you're free Serious to about work the, the job. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you book it and, and then say, oh, sorry, I, I don't want it, that doesn't go over very well. 
unless you're a big star, <laughs> then you can do whatever you want. So I said to Jim, you know, I don't want to go in this interview if it's not something I'm serious about. And we looked at ourselves and said, okay, we're two actors, two young children. You know, this is something you've thought about always doing. This is a fantastic opportunity. One of us would have a regular job. We'd be able to budget for the first time in our lives. <laughs> so I went on the interview and the rest is history. You know, I thought to myself, there's always another audition, but there's not always another chance to teach at Harvard Westlake, mm. meaning I can always go back to acting if that's what I want to do. So I started for my first eight years, I ran the drama program. I taught all the classes. And then after like the first two or three years, I was able to pass off the, the tech theater class to the tech director, who's more qualified to teach that. But, you know, I taught, you know, how to build flats and different kinds of lights and just the, you know, the details of what's behind the scene in tech theater, but I also taught drama workshop and I also taught acting. And while you were here, I mean, you've, you said there's only one chance to kind of teach at Harvard Westlake. What has kept you here so long? And then are there people or is there a particular mentor or mentors that were here that helped to keep you here so long? Well, when you were talking to me about deaning, what, what, what's kept me here so long was, again, the kids, but also my colleagues and the way the administration trusts its teachers we are not micromanaged and that respect and freedom and mutual admiration of my colleagues and also just watching a kid have that aha moment or find a moment of success, whether it's on the stage or in the classroom, that's what's that yeah, that's what means so much to me. Yeah. And has kept me here. And mentors, I would definitely say Nina Burchell, who was my department chair for a long, long time. She ran the choral program and retired in 2017. And we're still in touch. And she's married to former dean and English and math teacher, Paul Maston. Nina hired me and so did Debbie Reed. So I'm grateful to both of them for taking a chance on me and letting me grow the program because it's been so satisfying and so much fun and just being able to do so many different shows. Well, I want to get to your kind of wrap up the conversation by getting to your next step. But I, I think in the way to get there, you mentioned you start in, in the musical Mame. Mm -hmm. But th there's a story uh, mm. kind of about that musical and about a poster mm -hmm. <laughs> of that musical that relates a little bit to your family, a little bit relates to Harvard Westlake, a little bit to advancement. And so I, I wondered if you'd share that brief story sure, maybe as, sure. a, as a conclusion here. So one of the many Broadway shows my dad used to take me to, one of them was MAME. And yeah. Angela Lansbury starred in MAME on Broadway. And she's a Harvard Westlake grandparent, I might add. That's right. And then years later, I think maybe I was in ninth grade, I, he took me to go see her in Gypsy. So two performances that are indelible in my mind. But we went to go see MAME and I loved it. And Beatrice Arthur, the late, great, brilliant B. Arthur, played Vera, her actress, Mame's best friend, who's an actress. So I saw Angela Lansbury and Mame, and after the show, we went to go out for dinner, because this was after the matinee, to a restaurant called La Fonda del Sol in New York City. And a few tables away was Angela Lansbury and her daughter. And my dad grabbed a napkin, a cocktail napkin, that said La Fonda del Sol on it, you know, underneath his glass of water or whatever. And he gave it to me with a pencil. And he said, Kate, Go over there and get her autograph. I said, no, I'm too embarrassed. No, go over there. You're adorable. She'll love you. She'll give you your autograph. 
<laughs> she'll give you her autograph. So I went over, and he coached me, of course. So I said, Miss Lansbury, hello. My name is Kate Benton, and I just saw you in MAME, and I loved that show. Could you please give me an autograph? And she looked at me, and she said, oh, did you enjoy it? I said, yes, I did. She goes, what was your favorite part? And I said, oh, it had to be when you were on the moon and almost fell off. She she nearly ruins um, one of Vera's shows on Broadway. It's a, just a segment of MAME. So cut to, I'm at Dana Hall, my sophomore year. It's a spring. I've been cast as Vera Charles, the wisecracking best friend yep. actress. And for opening night, my dad gave me a framed picture of Angela Lansbury and B. Arthur dressed up as Mame and Vera in black and white and the autographed napkin, which I'd forgotten all about, Wow, was in the frame with the picture. So that was my opening night gift, which was really fantastic. And then I actually coincidentally went on to play that role again at Northwestern. My right. friend Mark Loker that I had mentioned before directed me in that. And winter of 2005, Jim and I we're visiting friends up in Santa Barbara, and we were driving home, and I get a phone call from Jean Hybrix, who was then head of middle school. And she said, Kate, are you in town? And I said, yeah. And she goes, something terrible has happened. There's been a fire at the middle school, and your office is gone. And I'm thinking, gone? My office was a little adjunct building that was not connected to the main building, of the old main administration building. So on the left side was my office, and on the right side was like a maintenance shed. I got to campus, and the entire, that little casita was complete ashes. There was nothing left from my office, and I had all my memorabilia, all my memories from when I was on stage at Dana Hall and at Northwestern, Things from New York. My wedding gift from Jean Armin, my, my drama teacher, ah. was an autographed poster from Antony and Cleopatra from Broadway. But the main poster and the napkin were also lost. Gone. Everything ah. gone. So jump ahead then to February, the following February. So this is December 2005, February 2006. My father passed away. And so suddenly losing all this stuff became even more... Um, made me made me sad hmm. yeah teary because so so many memories so Jean calls me in to a faculty meeting in April I was rehearsing Damn Yankees which was the spring musical that year and I'm in the great hall with about 42 kids <laughs> and it was like herding cats you know or shoveling smoke there's a lot of moving parts and I was called into the faculty meeting and I said, oh my gosh, I really, I, I really can't leave. And they said, just, just for 10 minutes. I said, okay. So I said, all right, you guys, kids, don't do anything naughty. Be good. <laughs> Stay put. I'll be right back. So I go to the faculty meeting, which was in the old library. And Jean makes an announcement. She, she makes an announcement about everything that I had lost in the fire and presents me with a poster of MAME, that's been autographed by Angela Lansbury saying, Dear Kate, remember meeting you and your dad after opening night many years ago. Here's to opening new windows, which is a song from Mame. Open a new window, wow. open a new door. Um, I found out that Jim Pattison from our advancement team had contacted her and told her what had happened and went to this her. This is Angela Lansbury. Yeah. Yes. Contacted Angela Lansbury and told her what had happened and went to her and got her autograph for me. And so they presented 
this poster. As I relive it, excuse me, while I feel emotional. I was blown away at the fact that Harvard Westlake listens. And they replaced something. It was different, but it was it had all the same memories in it. And it means so much to me. So it's one of my most cherished possessions still. And for those who don't know, Jim Pattison works in the Advancement Office, longtime yeah. member of the Advancement team. And interestingly, you are transitioning from being a dean this year to actually join our team to help do what Jim does, uh, yep. which is listen to people who want to support the school to nurture those relationships. And so we're so excited for you to be joining our team next year and um, for you to be doing hopefully that same kind of listening and being part of those same types of stories. Exactly, exactly. Because it makes you realize that the school cares about you. Yeah. Which is true. <laughs> Anyhow, I burst into tears in the faculty meeting and I said, thank you. And I hugged everybody and then I had to run away and go back to directing. <laughs> <laughs> Damn Yankees. <laughs> or shovel more smoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So before we go, there are a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast. They relate to Los Angeles, where you decided to move many years ago and decided to stay. We are known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So I want to ask you three of those questions. First, what's Kate Benton's favorite movie? It's so hard to choose one over another. So I have a bunch, but I'll just give you one title because it's perfect for Hollywood. Sunset Boulevard. It's just a classic. And for people that are under 40 years old who might be listening to this, do not dismiss it because it's a black and white film. There's some great stuff out there that is important to watch. What's your favorite meal in Los Angeles? Either something you and Jim have at home or a restaurant that you love to go oh, to? Oh, in Los Angeles. I always played that game, like if I've been on, deserted on, a, on an island and I finally come back into captivity, what meal would I have? I'd, I'd order right. a, a ribeye steak, uh, a baked potato with everything, and a Caesar salad. Um, that said... That meal's pretty great at a lot of restaurants in Los Angeles. Yeah. I love uh, another Harvard Westlake family. I love Crustacean. Mm, they in have, Beverly Hills. Yep. 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 As a young 20 year old, we would always go to El Coyote mm -hmm. on Beverly. Sure. Of course. It seemed like even if there were two people or if there were 13 people, the check was always $27. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a great place to go on a budget. So I have fond memories of El Coyote, although I haven't been there for a long time. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty similar to how it was, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it stayed the same. And what's your favorite place in LA? It could be the broader Los Angeles area. It could include Pasadena as well. So much of this is connected to memory and emotion. But I remember when Charlie and Hank were, were young, we would take them to the pony rides all the time in the Griffith Park. And they loved it. But I think they'll be getting rid of the pony rides because it's pretty cruel <laughs> to animals. But those trips to the carousel in Griffith Park and the pony rides and the little choo-choo train there, thats that yep. was a favorite spot raising my kids. I love going to the beach. I love playing tennis. So I love being outdoors. I love going down to the Amundsen, the Mark Taper Forum, and, and the Douglas Theater. I love going to see theater. Oh, and I have to probably throw in the Greek and the Hollywood Bowl because outdoor concert venues are really, really wonderful. Last question. You mentioned you were the parent of two boys. I'm the parent of two girls. In fact, you mm -hmm. just ran into my daughter at the Dodger game uh, over the weekend. Yep. The last question I ask every guest is, what is your best parenting advice? This could be either an original to you or something that you have learned either from your parents or from other parents. 
So I've, I've said this before at Meet the Deans through the years, so parents will remember hearing me say this. So aside from the advice I learned from my mother, which was let your kid learn how to be by themselves for at least an hour a day. <laughs> right. And the other thing that mom taught me was being late to pick up your child at a birthday party is a cardinal sin. <laughs> mm. Got it. Don't be late picking up your kid from a party. My advice about parenting would be let your kid vent and don't act on it right away. Charlie and Hank would come home and they might have had a bad day or even a good day and they just need to get stuff off their chest. And as a parent, we're naturally, we, we want to fix things right away. As a dean, I naturally want to fix things right away. So if something went bad and they would share it with me, I'd want to make a phone call to help them out or you know, make an appointment for them to meet their teacher or something. And I'd tell them what I'd done the next morning. It's like, why did you do that? Don't do that. I was just telling you. It was supposed to be just between us. So I think I made that mistake twice. And I did not make it a third time because I realized just you got to let the dust settle. Yeah. You know, um, it's like, you know, write a letter, but don't send it. You know, that was advice that was given to right. me years ago. Um, sleep on it, right? Sleep yeah. on it. Exactly. So let your kids have that tough experience and let them sleep on it. And then ask them what they might want to do to make it better or to solve it. And help them learn how to handle things on their own. Resist the urge to handle things for your kids because you're not helping them become mature and responsible in doing so. That is great advice. Kate Benton, thank you so much for the time and Thanks, for Eli. the stories. And thank you for joining the supporting cast. My pleasure. It was an honor. Thanks. Thanks.